0: First start off by see how see how well you listened last Wednesday, okay? See how, how good you remember from last Wednesday. So I'm gonna start with a really, really hard question. What is a psalm? Anybody want to guess? It's a song. It's a song. That's exactly right. Some of you were paying attention last week. It's a song. So when we look at the book of Psalms in the Bible, what we're looking at is the ancient Songbook for Israel, for God's people. Um, And so, both then and now, God's redeemed people have used the Psalms, this collection of songs, um, to remember the greatness of God as we sing them together. Now, God has used several different human authors to write the different Psalms, many of which are unknown in terms of their authorship. Uh, But we do know about King David. We do know about Moses, Solomon, just to name a few. But the one that we looked at last week, we don't know who the particular human human author is. And the one that we'll look at this week falls into that same category. Um, Some of the Psalms offer praise. Um, Some cry out for deliverance. Some confess sin. Others reflect on God's law. Lots of different reasons that the psalms are written. But of all the, of these different purposes and reasons that the psalms are written, they, all the psalms do one thing, and that is they unite God's people together. Specifically as God's people sang them together. You ever thought about why we sing as a group? You ever thought about that? I, 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 I hope that you've noticed that humans do that in certain contexts, right? Um, not, not every context is appropriate for that. Typically, your boss doesn't end a meeting by saying, join me in song, <laughs> right? Or, or your homeowner's associate someone doesn't stand up and say, let's stand together and sing Regulation 152. <laughs> that typically does not happen in an HOA meeting. But go to a sporting event and you're gonna sing more than likely, right? Around here, it's an interesting mix. If you go to a, box, a Boston Red Sox game, you are for sure going to sing what? Sweet Caroline. <laughs> yep, there you go, I knew it. But, but that doesn't even make sense. That's a love song. What does it have to do with Boston baseball? Nothing. It doesn't have to make sense. My alma mater is Texas A&M University. I graduated from there. And our fight song begins by saying, Hullabaloo, connect, connect. Hullabaloo, connect, connect. It's not even English. It's just gibberish. But we sing it. Why do we sing songs at a sporting event? Because we share a common Passion, our team. See, music unites people. And it does so on a heart level. Unlike many things, very few other things do in life, actually. And for God's redeemed people, we sing to express our united praise for the glory of God. We sing to express I want to make that very, very clear. We don't sing to impress. We sing to express because we're expressing a common passion for our great God, God Almighty. It's the role of music in the life of God's redeemed people. Why does this matter? Well, because like all the Psalms, Psalms 121, which is what we're going to look at tonight, was written so God's people could sing about something specific. Same with last week. Psalm 120, we looked at that last Wednesday night. That's a song about thankfulness and peace. And all the songs that we'll be looking at from week to week have been put into this category called the Psalms of Ascent. Now as we saw last Wednesday, that could mean two different things. And those two different things are not mutually exclusive. They can both be true at the same time. One is simply that these songs would be sung louder. Right? Psalms of ascent, that they would be sung louder, that the denotation that Pastor Russell talked about in the text is a musical one about singing with more gusto, (laughs) with more emphasis. The musical term today is accent, which means to play a particular note or a section of music. And if you're musical, you know this, you play it with more emphasis. You play it with more passion than the other section. But it could also be about, the Psalms of Ascent could also be about topography and elevation. Over the years, well after these Psalms were written, these Psalms of Ascent may have been the ones that were sung by the Hebrew people. As, as they walked to the city of Jerusalem, as they, those who lived outside the city made their way to the city, the only way to get there is up. And if you've been to the Holy Land, you know this. You can't get into the city without going up. Doesn't matter from which direction you come. They would have to ascend. Because the old city, and much of the new city still, sits on a massive limestone dome that is 2,500 feet above sea level. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know what I'm talking about. If you hadn't, let me show you what I'm talking about. So this is a photograph that I took um, from in 2014 when we went on this, we went with the church, McGregor, to a Holy Land trip. And so this is right above the Garden of Gethsemane shooting, looking at Um, the city itself. And you can see that if I'm going to get to the city from where I'm shooting that picture from, I've got to go down and then I've got to go where? Uh I've got to go back up, right? I have to first descend and then I can ascend. Now this is actually an artist's rendering of what the city of Jerusalem might have looked like sometime after Solomon built the temple uh, under just under 1,000 years B.C. And you can see, again, you've got the Kidron Valley on what would be the right as you're looking at it, got the Henan Valley on your left as you're looking at it. And regardless of how you go to into that city, you're going to go up. And even once you get into the city, just kind of zooming in towards the very back, that's Solomon's temple. So even if you're going into the city, once you're into the city, if you're going to the temple, you're going to go up even further. Again, you're ascending. Because again, the temple is the highest point in the city. So think about that. Three times a year, the Jewish folks living outside of the city are making a pilgrimage to be a part of the the three main festivals. Feast of Weeks, Feast of Tabernacles, and the Passover. And as they're huffing and puffing and going up the hill to get into the city, they're not complaining about the walk. But what are they doing? They're singing. They're singing songs about the greatness of God. And one of those songs is Psalm 121. I hope you're there by now. Let's take a look at it together and let's see what they were singing. 121 Beginning in verse 1. Word of God says this, I lift my eyes to the hill. Excuse me, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. And the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know what the tune was. But... It is a beautiful psalm. If this, and if this particular psalm has one unifying theme, I believe the theme is that the Lord is my keeper. I believe the way this psalm is structured, that everything, both before the very first phrase in verse 5 and everything after phrase, the, the phrase in verse 5, the Lord is my keeper, all of those things point to that as the main central thing. And everything's built around that theme to support it. Now, a bit like Russell did last week, I need to be able to credit my outline to another person because this one's not original with me, but it fits well with what this psalm is all about. And it's from J. Stephen Yule's really good book on the Psalms of Ascent entitled Longing for Home. Uh, It's a good, good resource, and I recommend it to you. So the first thing that we see is the crucial question. The crucial question in verse 1, like last week, this psalm begins with someone in need of help. But here, the psalmist looks to a particular place for that help. And that prompts his crucial question. So where does he look? What's verse 1 say? To the hills. hills. And what's his crucial question? Where does my help come? come? Recently you may have been in a situation where you thought to yourself, oh my, I'm going to need help. And the consequences may have been pretty dire. If not recently. Recently then you have most certainly been in one of those spots in your life. You may not have shouted it out, but you thought in your head, or maybe even whispered under your breath, oh my, I'm going to need help. Friends, let's don't deny it. We're a needy people. And in the ultimate sense, our self-sufficiency is an illusion. It's a mirage. Because... Honestly, the way to the good news of the gospel is to first understand the bad news about yourself. And that bad news is that you and I are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. We have a massive need for a Savior. And praise God, Jesus is that Savior. That's just Christianity 101, it's not deep theology. And many of you know that the longer we follow Christ, the more we realize just how much we need him, right? So the psalmist looks to the hills and he asks, from where does my help come? And there's a couple of ways to interpret that. One of them would be that he's the far off pilgrim is a long way from Jerusalem and he's making his way to the city on that journey and he wants to be present for one of those three festivals. And in that case, he looks to the hills as the reason why he needs help. The, the Holy Land in the Middle East in general um, is filled with difficult and rough terrain. And, and walking long distances in that area, it's not an easy task. There's plenty of challenges to do that because not only could you just twist your ankle or do something terrible like fall off a cliff, there's also dangerous animals in that wilderness. And there's robbers and thieves, particularly at this time. This is why people could relate to the moment where Jesus, when he was telling the parable of a good Samaritan, begins that story. How does he begin that story? He says in Luke ten thirty, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, going down in elevation from Jerusalem to Jericho. And what happened? He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This was the common concern as people traveled through the hills thinking to themselves, okay, From where does my help come from? Or another option of thinking of what that particularly means is that he's, again, the far-off pilgrim making his way to Jerusalem. And as he passes through the foreign territories to get to the city, he looks up at the hills and what does he see? He sees idols and pagan altars. And communities of those who would worship those pagan false gods. All devoted to that worship. And he thinks to himself, those people really believe that their false gods can help them. From where does my help come from? Or, you could interpret it this way, that he's near the nearby pilgrim who's already at the Kidron or the Henan Valley. He's already there at the city. And with Jerusalem being located itself on the hill, in the hill country where he's about to go up, he's headed to the temple. And in that case, he's looking at those hills that are nearby and asking himself where he will find his help because he knows where he's going. For Zion, after all, is referred to in the scripture as the hill of God. So there's several ways to think about this crucial question. And honestly, that's akin to real life. When I asked you earlier about your situation that may have happened recently in which you were thinking, Oh my, I'm going to need help. There's probably not two of the same scenarios that we were thinking about of all this, the people in this room, right? Neither of them, none of them, were exactly alike. Some of you may have thought about your marriage. A wayward child. Your job. Some sort of fractured friendship. Big decision that you've got coming up, and on and on lots of different things could have jumped into your mind when I ask you that question. Scenarios are all different, but praise God that by His grace, we get to ask the question, from where does my help come from? And praise God, by His grace, there's a clear answer to that, and that's verse 2. There's a clear answer to that, and it's in verse 2. You know, Before we look at verse two, God's not obligated to help us. Are you aware of that? He's not obligated to give you or I an answer to our prayers. He always does. The answer will be yes, or it will be no, or it will be not now. There's always an answer to our prayers. But he's not obligated to help in any way. In fact, the Apostle Paul was preaching at the Areopagus in Athens about 2,000 years ago. And that's, in that sermon, he makes this statement in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. This is what he says about God. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and Everything. God's self-sufficient. He's not obligated to give us an answer. He's not obligated to help us. But in His grace, He does. And verse 2, we get that proclamation from, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Praise Him for that. Yahweh is the Hebrew word used here for God. As you see it probably in your modern English translation, it says the Lord, more than likely. So why does the psalmist use this particular name of God? Why use Yahweh? Well, because Yahweh teaches the distinction, particularly between God and ourselves. It marks out the uniqueness of God. That God alone is the eternal one. He has no beginning and He has no end. He alone is self-existent. He was never created. But everything besides Himself was created by Him. (laughs) And that's why there's a little echo in the second half of verse 2 when the psalmist says of Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. Everything was made by Him. He created it all, and yet he himself is uncreated. See, friends, we are the created ones, and he is the creator, and you know what? You and I have a tendency to forget that, don't we? I know I do. I won't speak for you, but I do. Pastor John Piper puts it this way. He says, God exists absolutely. He did not come into being and will never go out of being. He is not becoming or growing or changing. He said, I am who I am. That is his name. He absolutely is. Couldn't agree more. So brothers and sisters, regardless of what dangerous scenario that you perceive that you might be in right now, the one we fear is God, not those circumstances. Do we need help? (laughs) Have you spent time with me? Ask my wife if I need help. (laughs) She will tell you the boy needs help. She will probably quote Genesis 2. It is not good for a man to be alone. (laughs) Do we need help? Certainly we do. We all do, right? But our help comes from the one who is sovereign over all our problems. Sovereign over all dangers. Sovereign over all people, all creatures, and all things. This is who our help comes from. So, When we look to the hills and we ask, where does my help come from? We get to remind ourselves, and again, that's what this song was about, singing this reminder among God's people to ourselves. That it's the one who made those hills and anything that could possibly be in them, he's the one who provides the help that we so desperately need. And look, I get the fact that it's discouraging to look around at the prevailing nature of sin in our world. I do. I watch the news regularly. And probably many of you do as well. But friends, our God is orchestrating all of that for His purposes as He alone directs human history towards His wise ends. And He's the one that has predetermined all of this according to the counsel of His own will. He's got this, right? And any help that you and I need, which is a lot if we're honest, that help is going to come from him and him alone. So if you're going to watch the debate tonight, (laughs) let's not forget where our help comes from. Right? So we have the crucial question. We have the clear answer. And now what the psalmist does next is he goes into the constructive sermon the constructive sermon. So there's something unique that begins in verse three. I want you to just kind of look, start scanning verse three to eight and see if you can figure out what changed. I'll put it that way. Anybody, any English teachers in here notice what changed? (laughs) From verse three on, the pronoun changed. Right? In verses one and two, the pronoun is what? I and my. And then in verse three, the voice shifts to what? Yeah, you and your. So we move from first person language in the first two verses to second person language in the rest of this song. So why is that? Well, the good news is it certainly doesn't radically change the meaning of the psalm if you don't even pick up on that. But there's probably at least three reasons that I can think of for this shift. One would be that it's now the voice of someone else beginning in verse 3 that is now traveling with the pilgrim as the pilgrim heads to Jerusalem. And now this pilgrim has sort of joined into the psalm. Almost like it's a musical number. Or, secondly, it possibly could be that the psalmist has the intent of the pilgrim talking to themselves. Now, I know I can't be the only one in this room that talks to myself. <laughs> Do I have any kindred in the room that talk to themselves? Yes. And the rest, you, the rest of you that didn't raise your hand are trying to talk yourselves into raising your hand, Right. <laughs> Paul Tripp, in his book, Dangerous Calling, says this, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. (laughs) Whether you realize it or not, you are in an unending conversation with yourself. You are constantly preaching to yourself some kind of gospel. He's right. That's why it's so important for you and I to be in the Word on a daily basis so that we can be preaching to ourselves the right and true gospel. So that could be an option, that he's talking to himself. Or third, there could possibly be a shift from first person to second person because that change in voice may have a musical purpose to it. Again, these are songs. And so maybe the musical purpose denotes that something has changed in the song. Let's say that the intent of the psalmist was for this now to be sung in a scenario where the pilgrim was nearby. Again, going back to that other scenario. Where maybe the first two verses would be sung as the person approached the Temple Mount. But once you get to the Temple Mount, you're now gathered with the rest of God's people and everyone is singing together at that moment. To encourage each other so this may have actually just indicate two musical parts and you know that we do that today right when we worship here in our church we sing songs about God to each other and we sing songs to God about him right this past Sunday we specifically sang, Jesus, there's no one like you. Jesus, we love you. Ever adore you. There's no one like you. Who is that to? Who are we singing to? Jesus. Jesus. That's right. We're singing to the Lord. But two Sundays ago, what did we sing to each other in that time? We sing, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. Who are we singing to there? Each other. Now, all worship is either directly or indirectly to God. But there's a different purpose in how we sing. We sing songs about God to Him. And we sing songs about God to each other. Depends on the voice. God is always to be the object of our worship. But when we sing to each other, we are reminding each other again about the greatness of our God. And what he has done for us. Now, by the way, I want to just pause and chase a rabbit here. Because I know that some of you are hesitant to sing in worship. I've been in ministry for over 30 years. And I have watched a lot of people stand in compliance when we stand to sing and not sing. And there's a higher preponderance of those being men than there are women. But I just proved to you that singing among God's people is not about being in harmony or on pitch, right? I just proved that to you. <laughs> singing together with God's people is part of the Christian life. It just is. That's not new. Heaven's the oldest psalm in, in, the, in, the, in all of the psalms is Psalm 90. That was written by Moses around 1500 B.C., this is not a new practice among God's people. And for we who are called God's people, not only are we designed to sing, like we talked about at the very beginning, but one day according to Zephaniah 3:17, 3, 3, God is going to sing over us. He's going to celebrate in singing that we belong to him. It's astonishing. We're going to sing along in response to a God who loves His own like our God does. It's going to be an incredible moment one day, but for now, we get to practice. And that's one of the things that we do when we gather on the Lord's Day every single Sunday, is we practice together for that great day, but as we practice and we sing congregationally together, we get a glimpse of what that day is going to be like. Okay, rabbit chase has ended. So, what does the truth of this sermon remind us of? Well, it reminds us first of all that He is the keeper in all places. God is the keeper in all places. Look at the beginning of verse 3. Verse 3 says he will not let your foot be what? Moved. Moved. Remember we talked about the rocky terrain that is endemic to the Holy Land and the, wildernesses, the wilderness around it. Um, all the paths through the mountains and the valleys. The Lord is always the reason your feet and my feet stand firmly planted as we follow him. Have you ever admitted to yourself or maybe even to another person, oh yeah, i let that slip. Or oh my, I dropped that ball this time. You ever had to admit that? Yeah, I have to do it all the time. You know, the Lord has never needed to admit that because he's never done that, Amen. right? Not for you, not for me, not for his purposes. Why? Because he's our keeper. And he excels at being the keeper of his children. And what we see now in the second half of verse 3 is the beginning of the repetition of the same Hebrew word that gets translated in English as keeps, keep, or keeper. Psalmist uses that word six times. And the word means the same thing really in each context, which is to provide safety or protect. To preserve. This is what our God does for His children. And our covenant-keeping God does this freely for all who are in Christ Jesus today. Because He has promised to do so. And He's a man of His Word. Excuse me, He's a God of His Word. He's your keeper if you're in Christ. And that applies to all places that you might be in. Verse three goes on. He who keeps you will not what slumber. Behold, who he he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. If you were here for the Elijah series back in the spring, <laughs> what did Elijah say to the prophets of Baal when they were trying to summon their God to come down and and? And let the fire fall and consume the sacrifice on the altar. Do you remember that? He was mocking them, wasn't he? He was mocking their God. It was quite a showdown on Mount Carmel. He, he said, where's your God? Maybe, maybe he's thinking. <laughs> maybe he stepped out for a moment. Maybe he needed to relieve himself. Or maybe he's what? Asleep. And you need to wake him. What is that, friends? That's sarcasm. And I've tried to use 1 Kings 17 to remind my wife that sarcasm can sometimes be biblical, but she's not buying it. (laughs) But what was Elijah doing in that moment? He was highlighting the ridiculous fallacy that Baal was a legitimate God. Because a legitimate God doesn't fall asleep. I don't know about your sleep life, but I know about mine. (laughs) And I am a blessed man to sleep well most nights. I know that's not true for every one of you for a variety of reasons. But I don't just sleep. I sleep. (laughs) I sleep hard. And if you needed something between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., Don't bother calling me because I won't hear my phone go off. I cannot respond because I am completely incapacitated in the blessing of sleep. So if you're in a precarious or dangerous situation and your foot is about to slip, you're about to fall, I would just be oblivious and I wouldn't be able to help you. In fact, I would never know that you even needed help. And I would wake up in the morning oblivious and not feel bad about it. But God's not like that, is he? He's omniscient. So that means he's aware of your location. We tell our oldest son that all the time. God is aware of your location even though we can't find you on the iPhone. He's aware of your location and my location at all times and he's fully briefed on your situation. Well before you're briefed <laughs> and way more thoroughly than you and I are. You know, one of the problems in our culture is I think the popularity of the superhero genre in movies like the Marvel universe and the DC universe and that, that there are actually kids and adults who could easily think about God as being some kind of superhero. But every superhero has limits, right? Yep. They've got a weakness of some sort. And by the way, every superhero is not real. Let's don't miss that. But God is. He has no limits, He has no weaknesses. And the reality is that for his children, he is the keeper in all places. He does not sleep. He is always aware. He does not slumber. He is always at the ready with help. This is the greatness of our God. He's the keeper in all places, but he's also the keeper in all conditions. He's also the keeper in all conditions. As I said earlier, I think verse 5, the Lord is your keeper, is the summary statement of this song. And and everything else in the song supports that main thesis. But he goes on to say in the second half of verse 5, look at it with me, he says, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. Now, how many of you have lived in Florida for more than six months? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's most of you. If you're new, welcome. It's hot here. And that's not a new thing. Even though you wouldn't know that by watching the news. But living in Florida, we can relate to the need to be protected from the sun, right? I just said hello to um, a brother out there. and We were catching up and I said, how was your day at work? He works outside. He works in the heat. And he said, well, it was... A good day, the Lord sustained me, but it was miserable. (laughs) I appreciate the honesty. I rode my bike this morning at 5.30 for the same reason, just so I wouldn't have to be in the sun. Sun can be brutal here. And it can be brutal in the Middle East. But if you have shade, you can survive. And that's the point here, I believe. Because even though life can be brutal... God keeps His children shaded under His protective care. That's the imagery that's being written about and sung about here. But, we don't diminish how brutal life can be. The death of a family member. The loss of a child. Divorce. Persecution. Bankruptcy. Abuse. Fire. Hurricane. Loss of a job, disability, a prodigal child. The list is long and it can be brutal. But the Lord preserves His children under any or all conditions. And it's important to note that the protection the Lord gives that He's talking about through all of this psalm is an ultimate Protection, not a necessarily a temporal protection. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are imprisoned and martyred on a regular basis just because they're claiming the name of Christ. And that may become the case here in this country one day. If so, bring it on. So let me ask you a question In those circumstances, has the Lord failed in keeping his children? Has he? No, he has not. He may not keep us from temporal danger, but he always keeps us from ultimate danger. And that's way more important. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 10, 28. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You know who he's talking about there. He's not talking about Satan. He's talking about the Father. He's talking about the Father, someone who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. See, someone who persecutes you can only harm your body, but God is the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. So fear him, not people. That's Jesus' point. And praise God, He is our ultimate keeper in all conditions. And verse 6 concludes this little section of the sermon. Look at what he says. He says, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Hmm. The psalmist reminds us here that the protective cover and shade of the Lord that He puts over His children is round the clock. Each and every day one of the things that this song reinforces is the security of the believer, which is not just an exclusive New Testament doctrine. We're seeing it right here in the Old Testament Psalms that the the gift of eternal life is, well, it's eternal. It doesn't end. And the salvation of the Lord is ultimate and sure he is the keeper in any and all conditions and finally last part of this little sermon is fascinating because he begins to talk about that the Lord is the keeper in all seasons look at verses 7 and 8 the Lord will keep you from what all evil, all evil. read that real closely and then he says he will keep your what life. keep your life The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. See, the ultimate and temporal distinction is important to make here in these two verses as well. Because it also applies to the evil that's mentioned here and the life that's mentioned here. He's talking about ultimate evil and he's talking about ultimate eternal life as well. Which, by the way, ultimate evil cannot touch the soul of the redeemed. You realize that, don't you? We are saved by God's grace, and we are kept by His grace as well. Regardless of what our enemy attempts to do to us. John puts it this way in 1 John 5, 18-20. He says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God... Think about those who belong to God in the Old Testament. Was Joseph protected from temporal evil? No, he wasn't. He became the head of cell block D for a long time, right? Was Jonathan kept from temporal evil? How about the Apostle Paul? From his own testimony, he was not. Shipwrecks, persecution, beatings, jail. How about Stephen? Was Stephen kept from temporal evil? Nope. Just the first and one of many, many martyrs down through the years. Were the disciples... Think about how their end all took place. Each of them, except John, who was um, sentenced to being on an island until he died, all of them were martyred as well. How about Naomi? was she kept from temporal evil? She buried two kids and her husband. And alone, she probably dug the graves herself. See, these people were all affected by the evil perils of life in a fallen world, and they were, of course, afflicted over the course of their life. All the seasons, which is what that phrase in the second half of verse 8 indicates. When he says you're going out and you're coming in, he's talking about the seasons of life. Because through all of those seasons and all of that difficulty and all of the awful, perilous, evil effects of sin, the Lord kept them. And the Lord keeps us through all the seasons of life just the same, even as we're affected by sin, our own or someone else's. Seasons like childhood, adolescence, Young adulthood, married life, single life, raising kids, empty nesters, caring for your own parents until they pass. Senior adulthood, the blessing of grandkids, and the heavy heartedness of grandkids. Retirement, and the last day on the planet. All the seasons of life, the Lord keeps His children. All of them. He keeps His children through those seasons and on into eternity. And any hurt that was caused by my own sin or your own sin or the sin of others against us, that hurt is only temporary. It may be difficult to see that now, but that's the testimony of Scripture. That hurt is only temporary. And even though it's temporary, it still gets used for God's redemptive purposes in our life. God still works redemptively. He still works through the pain in life. And He works through human suffering. It is a mystery how He does that, but He does that for His own glory and the good of those whom He calls His children. Praise God. For his keeping work. If you are here tonight and you have never turned from your sin and by faith trusted in Christ to save you. He is sovereign over you. But there is an ultimate evil that is headed your way. Imagine if you and I were having a conversation and you were standing here in front of me and I'm standing where I am and I see a locomotive behind you coming at full force and I step off the track. I'm going to warn you about the locomotive that's headed straight at you if I have any amount of decency in my body because it's going to destroy you. The worst evil that you could ever experience is not anything you've ever experienced in this earth, but it's the reality of hell for all of eternity. The absence of God. And you may not even think that that is an issue or need in your life right now. That you should turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in Christ. You may not recognize that you're in need of a Savior. But our prayer for you is that you would recognize that. And like many of us in this room, that under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you would see the beauty and the goodness of Christ who has made a way for you and I to escape ultimate evil and for the Lord to help us in a way in which we cannot help ourselves. He is our keeper, he is our helper, if we know his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the good news coming from Psalm 121, a song of ascent.